And we've seen a number of these themes, all things created by God for His glory, how He set man in place to rule over His creation, to image His glory under Him, ruling creation, enjoying His presence in this paradise, this garden paradise. And then we encountered uh, the, the terrible day where Adam and Eve decided that they would believe something else besides God's Word, believe the serpent and the lies that he brought, and they fell into sin and have passed on that sinful disposition to all of mankind. And so we've taken a little detour just to talk a little bit more about sin, this important topic of sin. So we spent some time in Romans 7, looking at the seriousness, and then we've been spending some time speaking about the cure for sin. And we, last week, talked about the double-barreled shotgun approach to killing sin, the two barrels that we can aim at the monster of sin and, and kill it. Does anyone remember those two barrels? The Spirit of God and the Gospel of Christ together act as a double-barreled shotgun to kill sin. And so last week we spent time in Romans 8 speaking and learning about the Spirit of God. How the Spirit of God is the the fundamental and essential element of our holiness. Of our holiness in terms of our growth in Christ. We talked about sin, the cure for sin being three parts. The cure for its penalty, found in Christ and His condemnation. The cure for its power, found in the experience of the Holy Spirit in us. And the cure for its presence, found through the work of the Holy Spirit and the Gospel. So the, the... cure for its presence must be and is grounded on the work and activity of the Spirit. That's really what Romans 8 is about. Well, this morning, we're going to focus a little more on how the Gospel comes into play in dealing with the presence of sin in our lives. So let's pray, and then we're going to look at Ephesians 4.17-5.2. to Lord, I pray that You, this morning, would magnify Your name, And Lord, that you would care for and build up your people. And Lord, you would draw those who don't know you to yourself, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would do that the way you have chosen to do it. And that is by the work of your Spirit through your Word. As it is ministered through me, your servant, Lord, not because I'm worthy, but because You are gracious. You're gracious to me. You're gracious to us. You are good. You are amazingly good. That You would call us to Yourself and make provision in Christ. And then not, not just stop there, but work in our lives to, to make us more and more like Christ. We thank You for that. And so, Lord, we, we look to You. We depend on You. Father, I ask You, Lord, by your grace, and for your glory. Would you work in this time? Would you speak through your word? Would you magnify your name? Build us up. Change us. Lord God, we love you. We love your ways. So teach us and lead us. Fill us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17 and reading through the beginning of chapter 5. Really, this is all one section that should go together. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk 
as the Gentiles do, and the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 4, 17-5-2. And from this section, we're going to talk about how the Gospel functions in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ, to to deal with the presence of sin. give you a little background, I think, to help us understand this passage. Paul has spent about three chapters or more speaking about the incredible truth of the Gospel, the incredible truth that God, the Son, died on the cross to pay for our sins. Not only that, but that this same God determined before time began to make us His own. Not only that, but that He wants to, through the redemption, through our redemption, through His Son, through His action in all creation, cause all things to be used for His glory through these things. He wants to glorify His name through these things, through this Gospel, through grace, through His love, through His mercy, through His Son, and wants to fill the whole universe, the whole universe, with the glory of God. Not only that, but Paul's been talking about the way he wants to do this. It's not some ethereal, theoretic way. He wants to do it through a group of people, even sinful people. Through a new humanity he's creating in this sinful people. He wants to do it through the creation of a new entity, a spirit-born, organized entity, full of sinners, yet 
sinners who experience the Spirit linked together in what we call the church. So all these things, the glory of God through the church, and that's what he's been talking about. And so now, in chapters 4 and on, at this point, he wants to explain how all that stuff is going to work out. What is it going to look like? What is the nitty-gritty? What needs to happen? What are some of the things that need to happen to bring those things to fruition? He's really answering that kind of Monday morning question that many of us probably have. That's all great. Cool stuff. Glory of God. The grace of God. But, but what difference does it make on Monday morning? What difference does it make in my life, in our lives, on Monday? What does it look like? How do you, how do you take these truths and, and, and live them out? How do they have an effect through our lives? And so he's answering that Monday morning question, really, in these chapters. What does it look like? Perhaps that's been your question as we've talked about the truths of the penalty of sin and the power of sin and the presence of sin being dealt with, you've thought, well, I mean, I kind of get it, but how? What does it look like? What's the nitty-gritty? God cares very much about the nitty-gritty. See, that is the arena God wants to show His glory. We must never detach those. When we read about God wanting to glorify His name in the whole universe, these cosmic-sized truths of God, we must never detach them from the nitty-gritty. Because for God, they're not detached. He wants to display these cosmic-sized truths in pint-sized doses and pint-sized brains in our lives. That's how He wants to work. He is very concerned about this. He's very concerned about bringing these things to fruition in our lives. And so, let's continue. The Gospel, this Gospel that Paul speaks about in Ephesians and is throughout the Word, is about bringing change on Monday mornings. It's about impacting our lives. It's, it's about having the Gospel affect us. The Gospel changes lives. The Gospel changes lives. The Gospel is something that's meant to bring change for us. It's meant to bring holiness in our lives on Monday morning. It's meant to have an impact. The Gospel is something that is meant to have an impact in each of our lives. It's important for us to understand a couple things about the Gospel. The Gospel is the story of Christ. It is the events, the saving events of Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection. And, and none of us were a part of that story. The Gospel is an objective thing. It's outside of us. And no matter what we do or think or feel, whether, no matter if we believe it or not, it exists, it's real. But the, the truths of the Gospel are not just meant to be theoretical something 20 or 2,000 years ago. They're meant to have an impact in our lives. To work in our lives. To bring real change. And so, Ephesians 4 and 5 and half of the Scriptures speak about what does this stuff look like worked out in your lives? What does it mean about how you live and what you do? The Gospel is about change. The Gospel is about change in our lives. By the Spirit of God, He brings change. And I believe there's four ways from this passage that the Gospel brings change. So we're going to take a look at that. Four different ways that this passage talks about how the Gospel brings change. Let me give you those ahead of time and then we'll jump into them more in detail. 
One, change comes when we meet Christ through the Gospel. Change comes when we meet Christ through the Gospel. So when we meet Christ. Two, change comes when our minds are renewed by the Gospel. Change comes when our minds are renewed by the Gospel. Three, change comes when our motivations are refreshed in the Gospel. Change comes when our motivations are refreshed. And change change comes when our mode of living conforms to the Gospel. So if it helps you, meet, mind, motivations, mode of living. Or M words. So the gospel works these ways in our lives. Brings change in these ways. Brings change in our lives so that not only is the penalty of sin dealt with, thank God for that. And that is the basis, really all the rest. Not only is the power of sin through the Spirit dealt with in our lives, but the presence of sin is dealt with. There is change. The gospel is about change. And it works through these different ways. So let's talk about the first one. We change when we meet Christ through the Gospel. That is such an important beginning point. Paul is speaking to the Ephesians and he's reminding them and calling them to certain actions. Okay? He, he lays out the Gentiles' behavior and he says, this isn't how you learned Christ. This is not how you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. So learned, heard, and taught. What tense are those? Verb tense. Past tense, right? So it's something that has already happened. So Paul is reminding them that they have learned Christ. That they have heard. That they were taught about Christ. These folks have already experienced something. And this is the basis for what Paul calls them to. They have already experienced something. They've learned and heard and been taught what? Some key information? What have they learned and heard and been taught? Christ. Not just some information. Not just some idea. Not just some noble concept about God's glory and greatness and mercy. But a person. You see, the Gospel is meant to be used by the Spirit of God. Not that we might have more information. Not that we might know more, and that's all important, but that we might encounter a person, Christ. And so the Ephesians have already encountered Christ. They have learned of Christ. They have met Christ. Not just any old person, not just some famous person, not just Time Magazine's person of the year, but the person of the ages. Christ Himself. And they've had an encounter with Him. They've, they've come to meet Christ through the preaching of the Gospel. Again, the Gospel. The, the story, the account of the saving work of Christ is life, death, and resurrection. All, that's all information. But God wants to use that information in the power of the Spirit that we might encounter Him. So they had encountered Christ. There had been things that already went on. There was already change going on in their lives. They had already experienced tremendous change. The day that they believed, everything was different. Change happened. Bigger than they knew. Bigger than new. Much of the Scripture is teaching us just how significant this change that has already happened is. And so Paul calls them to that. Matter of fact, he's writing a letter to the Ephesians and he spends 
Three chapters really talking to them about what this change is. How significant it is. And if you read chapter 1, you can start to see what they have already experienced. Chapter 1, verse 7. Their sins have been paid for. They have been adopted by God Himself. Verse 5. Chapter 1, 5. They've been counted blameless in Christ through His death, through His blood shed for them before God. That's in chapter 1, verse 4. They have inherited every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Chapter 1, verse 3. And then chapter 1, 13-14. They've received the promised Holy Spirit. Their inheritance, their eternal salvation has been sealed with the Spirit of God. Saying, you are mine. My Spirit's on you. You're different. You're new. So they've already encountered, they've met Christ through the Gospel. And everything's different. Everything is changed. When they heard the Gospel, turned from their sin, put their faith in Jesus as their only Savior from sin, and put their faith in Him as Lord of life, they were changed. They were changed as they met the Gospel. And if you are a believer this morning, whether you feel it in particular this morning or not, the same has gone on for you. You have changed. Your life is different as you have met Christ through the Gospel. Your sins are paid for. You are now adopted and counted as His own. Every spiritual blessing is available to you. And now the promise to work out all things for your good is applicable to you. And the Spirit of God is in you, whether you feel it or not. Change has already happened. You're forgiven. You're His. You experience the Spirit in you. You're counted blameless. And you know, if that weren't true, I'd be wasting my time up here. Because the only reason that you are interested in what I'm saying, ultimately, is because this change has already happened. Because the Spirit of God is in you, saying, listen to this. This is good. This is truth. This is what you need to hear. And, and, and it, He's working in you that way, so that you long for the good things of God. You even long for righteousness. So don't be discouraged. We struggle. Sin is, sin is present in us. We struggle. But there's something bigger going on in us. There's a change that has already happened. The Spirit of God is in us saying, yes, more. I want this. I want God. I want His ways. It's true. And we are to rest in that. We are to rest that that change has already happened. We are to, to satisfy ourselves because God is satisfied with us in His Son. And that has to be the basis, the groundwork for any future change. That we already are reconciled. Our sins are already paid for. We are already adopted. We already have fellowship with the spirits. That has to be the basis. And I think I would go even further than that. That if it is not the basis, any future change is legalism and dross before God. It is nothing worth nothing. If we are not grounding ourselves on the fact that our sins are already paid for, we are already accepted completely, that His blood was shed for us, we belong to Him already, any future work is legalism and dross. And, and, and it's self-effort. We're not going to go anywhere. We're only going to be frustrated because it will be us trying to achieve some righteousness in God's sight instead of resting in the sun. 
your basis for dealing with the presence of sin begins with resting that the penalty and power is already dealt with. William Romaine, a Puritan pastor, uh, actually Anglican pastor during the Great Awakening, said, no sin can be crucified, put to death, either in heart or life, unless it first be pardoned in conscience. If it be not mortified in its guilt, it cannot be subdued in its power. Folks, if you have sin in your life you're aware of, the first place to start is this sin's already paid for. And I don't have to earn anything before God because the Son already has. And I'm turning from this sin, but I'm not earning anything before God. I'm already forgiven. I'm already counted as His Son. And so now let's, from that vantage point, let's deal with this. I'm free, but I want to grow. I love God. I see His truth. I belong to Him. So we change when we meet Christ because we've met Christ through the Gospel. Number one. Two, we change as our minds are renewed in the Gospel. Verses 21 to 24, Paul is calling them to put off the old man and put on the new man. And right in the middle of that statement, if you want to look there, verse 23, verse 22, put off your old self. Verse 24, put on the new self. Right in the middle of that, it says to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So he wants the Ephesians to learn to live holy good lives, to, to put away the presence of sin. And so he's calling them to put off and put on. But right in the middle he said, says to be, renewed, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to be renewed in your thinking. It makes sense actually, how we're made, but also early on in the passage, he's speaking about the Gentiles. And he speaks about their lifestyle. They, they, uh, that the Corinthians are not to walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And then it says they are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. So they, they and their thinking, in their minds, are ignorant and darkened. And so Paul wants the Ephesians to grow in godliness, to walk out the implications of the Gospel. So he says to do that, you need to have your minds changed. You've got these old ways of thinking. You've got these Gentile ways of thinking. You've got these old man sinful ways of thinking. Your mind needs to be renewed. If you want to see change in your life, you, you need to renew your mind. Your mind needs to be renewed. We are all brainwashed, folks, one way or the other. It's just a question of what you wash your brain with. And Scriptures calls to wash our brain in something different than the world. If you want to see change in your life, if you want to see more of Christ, you must, we must, I must be renewed in our thinking, in our mindset. We must fill our minds with something else that will displace the other stuff that's there. Now Paul's not calling the Ephesians and God's not calling us to merely stop thinking the old stuff and fill it with something neutral. I mean, he's not saying, you know, kind of stop thinking Gentile things and think more about mathematics or classical music or TV trivia. There's the content to what we're supposed to think of. There's content. There's something we're supposed to think of. There's content to what we're we're doing. What do you think that content is? What are the things that are supposed to occupy our mind? What is from the passage? What do you think? Any guess? Christ. The Gospel. That's right. So it's not just any old content that's supposed to renew our mind. It's not Bible trivia, though that's okay, that's supposed to fill our minds. It's the, the core 
the core truth, the Gospel of Christ. That is to fill our minds. We know that because of the testimony of Scripture. We know that too, but if you back up and you look earlier in chapter 4, Paul wants... Well, Paul is speaking about what Christ wants. He wants to see this new humanity in the context of the church built up into maturity. And you know how we get there? Through the ministers, the different ministers he's given to the church, the different leaders he's given to the church to build up the ministers. You guys are the ministers. I serve you. You're the minister. ministers. So the leaders are to come in there to build up the ministers. How do they build up the ministers? What is the content of their teaching? The Gospel. The truth. The truth that is in Jesus. Paul says you've, you've learned the truth that is in Jesus. Chapter 4 it speaks of speaking the truth in love. It's not just any old truth that it's speaking of. It's the truth of Jesus. The Gospel. So we are to renew our minds with the Gospel. We are to have the truths of the Gospel affect us. To fill our minds. And so that's what's going on right here, right now, is it? I hope going on. As we come on Sundays and we hear the Word preached, part of the function is so that our minds might be renewed. And so we need to take advantage of preaching and teaching and fellowship, not missing the opportunity we have from it to have our minds renewed. So I would recommend, actually, that that you listen to a message like this, given that the Lord has used it, more than once. So we make these messages available online. The manuscript's there and the audio's there online. And, And that's so that you can listen to it again. And think about the truths that are in it. And let your minds be renewed. Let your minds be washed with the truth, with the Gospel of God. Let your minds have the other things washed out. If you are struggling with sin and your mind is going elsewhere, you need to wash your mind. And, and, and that, I mean, that's my life. I need to wash my mind in the Gospel. And, and I'm studying this stuff during the week and I still need it. So we all need to, to listen to messages. We need in our care groups to talk about truth, to fellowship around the message or other teaching that we have, to memorize the Word of God, to basically stew as much as we can in the Word and in the truths of the Gospel. That is the aim of our fellowship, ultimately. To, to remind each other of the Gospel, be refreshed in the Gospel, and help each other, walking together in love, to apply the Gospel. Ephesians 4, again, speaking the truth in love, we will all grow up into Him who is the head, Christ. Right? It's speaking the truth in love. That's what, we're, that's what the church is about. Growing up, speaking the truth in love, and doing His work for His glory. So our minds, there's change that comes as our minds are renewed in the Gospel. Next, um, our, we change as our motivations are refreshed in the Gospel. Our motivations are refreshed in the Gospel. And this section talks about at least two motivations. So as we visit the Gospel, our motivations are to be refreshed as we encounter the Gospel. It's interesting. I think there's two motivations that Paul hits at. One, I think, is duty or the the duty side of love. Love is certainly about passion and desire, but love is also about duty. So Paul talks about the duty side of love, and he talks about, I think, love in its entirety as well later on in the section. So two motivations. And as we consider the Gospel, these motivations are refreshed. It's interesting to know what Paul does right at the beginning. Having spoken all these things, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. 
Paul insists. He says, guys, you belong to Christ. Your, your inheritance is in heaven. He's shed His blood for you. You belong to Him. You are His. He is yours. So walk this way. Now, in other places, he uses other motivations, but here, in a sense, he's, he's saying, this, this is your duty. This is what you are called to. You're a believer. You are to walk in this. This is your duty. Now, there's reasons for that duty. It is an empty duty, but it's duty nonetheless. Paul's not, at this point, appealing to other things more than walk according to who you are and what you're called to. And so he calls them to this. And that motivation must function in our lives. It's important that duty functions in our lives. Because if that motivation, and it's really the, lo- the duty side of love. Love is more than a feeling, more than a desire. It is a choice that we make. And so the duty side of love must operate in our motivation. And so the Gospel brings that to us. It says, you have died with Christ. You are His. You are united to Him. The day you came to know Him, a miracle happened in your life where you turned from your sin. And you said, I don't want to sin. And, and at that point, your sin, the old man, was crucified with Christ on the cross and put to death, put away. And then you put your faith in Christ for life, for your everything. And you were raised with Him from the dead to new life. We have a union with Christ. We have died to sin. And we live now in Him. And because of that, we must walk in that truth. Those truths, that reality for us compels us to walk it out. So Paul says, I, now I insist on this and testify that you live this way. And that function, that, that motivation functions a lot in Scripture. The kind of the call of duty in love. And you guys understand this. If you're married, you know. I mean, we want, those of us who are married, we want to ha- have full desire for our spouse. We want to love them with all our feelings. Hopefully we want to do that. If not, talk to me afterwards. We want to love them with all our feelings. We want to desire their best. We want it to fill all our emotions and all our passions. But sometimes those things aren't all there. And we, we don't want, we want those things. And, and it's interesting, it seems, I mean, my, my semi-ignorant observations of culture, I would say a hundred years ago, duty love was big. You know, love, make a choice. Love is a choice. Maybe even less than that. Do it. And they neglected passion and desire. I would say we are drifting, if not careful, in modern evangelicalism to passion, but forgetting duty. They go together. They're motivations in Scripture that go together. They're right here in Ephesians. So Paul calls them, calls them to duty. We understand that if we're married, because if you rely on how you feel about your spouse, what passions you have, what desire, how strong that is on a given day you'd be in trouble. Because there's some days you're just not going to feel like it and not be very interested in it. Sadly, sorry honey, it's nothing about you, it's about me, my sin. But there's days when that's going to happen. And, but we know we've made a covenant with this person. We've made a covenant before God. We have pledged our love. We didn't say, I will love you as long as I feel like it. We said, till death do us part. We made a covenant and we must walk according to that covenant. And we must do all we can to cultivate our affections. Yes, let's not ignore that. But it's grounded on the reality of the covenant. Similarly for us as believers. 
our obedience must be grounded on the reality that God in Christ, by His grace, has made a covenant with us, has included us as His people. And we see the effects when duty is not included as a motivation. We see it in marriage. You guys, I'm sure, know. I, I sadly have friends who were divorced because one of the spouses said, I just don't love them anymore. We see that around us. But if duty's functioning, it will work. It functioned in the Savior's life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he wasn't necessarily very excited about going to the cross. He didn't necessarily feel a whole lot. I think what he felt actually was, I don't want to do this thing. If you read the, read the story, Father, if there's any way, He's, he's, he's praying and he's sweating blood and he's agonizing. This is terrible. He didn't feel like it. He wasn't passionate about the glory of God there in the, in the sense of his emotions and desires. But he knew, he knew God is good and wise and he's worthy and he's my father and I'm going to choose to walk out what we agreed on. And he decided to walk according to duty, to love which is duty, and fall through with that. And we're here today because of that. So thank God that the Savior was motivated by duty. But there's other motivations too in this passage. So much of the passage, Paul is just calling them, live this way. This is what's happened. You must no longer live as the Gentiles. You must walk this way. But also the motivation of love in the fuller picture is here as well. Chapter 5. Wonderful. Actually, the end of 4, 32, and chapter 5, 1 and 2. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. First John 4, we love because He first loved us. We experience His love because He first loved us. First John 3, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. When we encounter the love of God and realize the love of God and recognize it's in the Gospel, so our, it's in the Gospel we see the love of God, our motivations for change are refreshed. For what is really putting off the presence of sin? What is holiness? It's love, isn't it? Love for God. Love for others. So as we recognize His great love for us, we turn around and love Him. As we experience His love for us, we love others. The story is told of two brothers who were inseparable. Mike, a 12-year-old, and his adoring 9-year-old brother, Pete. Near their house, back in the woods, was a large sand pit. And Mike and Pete loved to play off in the woods, but their mom had warned them not to play in the sand pits, for it was dangerous. There were sinkholes in some of the mounds. One day, Mike and Pete were playing off in the woods, and they saw a wild turkey near the sand pit, and they chased it and ended up in the sand pits. And at that point in time, instead of remembering their mother's command, they were more interested in just how cool the sand pits were the big cliffs and the mounds of sand, and forgetting that their mother's command, they began to jump down the sides of the mounds together. They spent a couple hours doing that and started to get tired of it, were ready to go home, and decided that they would jump together on the last hill. 
As they landed, the ground gave way underneath them, and they sunk in the sand. Well, dinner time came around. They didn't show up, so their mom and their dad and the whole neighborhood went out looking for them. Finally, as it was getting dark, they found Pete alive, buried up to his neck in the sand. They were so ecstatic to see him. They went running to him, and they reached him. Oh, Pete, it's great. You're alive. Where's Mike? Pete, through his tears, said, Oh, Mom and Dad, Mike saved me. I said, Where is he? Where is he, Pete? He's right here. He's underneath me, holding me up. I'm standing on his shoulders. Mike had boosted Pete up on his shoulders as the sand came caving in and thus saved his brother's life. He gave his life to save Pete's life. Your brother, Jesus, gave his life to save you. There's no greater love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The gospel truth brings fresh motivation to change. Finally, we change as our mode of living conforms to the gospel. We change as our mode of living conforms to the gospel. Paul spends the bulk of this section in the middle speaking about their mode of living, how to live, and speaking about and calling them to live differently in line with the gospel. That we are, as we have met Christ, and, and as we are refreshed in our motivations, and as we have our minds renewed, we are to see our lives conformed to the gospel. It's important for us to understand that these things, these elements of change, meeting Christ, that's the basis that's already happened. Minds being renewed, motivations being refreshed, those things happen as we go. Paul calls the Ephesians to change in their mode of behavior outright. He doesn't say once you've understood enough, once your mind is renewed enough, once your motivations are adequate, then follow the mode. He calls them to walk according to the truth they already have. Certainly, certainly, we want our minds renewed more and more. We want our motivations to be peaked to the truth of the Gospel as the Spirit applies them to our lives. But we are to walk out the truth of the Gospel in our behavior. So Paul's not afraid to say, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. You must put off the old man and put on the new. You must walk and live and do these things in conformance with the Gospel. Your mode of living must change. And so he spends much of this section calling them to different behavior. No more stealing. Instead, working and giving. No more lying, but honesty. No more complaining or bickering or gossiping, but helpful speech. No more bitterness or anger or factions or slander, but kindness, forgiveness, and love. And the rest of the New Testament is full, chock full, of similar commands that are consistent with gospel-centered living. So we can always ask ourselves, is my current behavior 
in keeping with the gospel. It's a great evaluation tool. The gospel itself is a wonderful mirror to evaluate our lives. And as we see inconsistencies, to go back to where? The gospel. Receive forgiveness, fresh motivation, have our minds renewed, and walk in obedience. So the gospel is a great evaluation tool. We can take any situation that we're struggling with and compare it to the gospel and say, is this in keeping with the gospel? Let me just throw one out there, and then I'll take one from you guys, perhaps. Just say it's unhappiness, discontentment of some sort. Anyone ever struggle with that at any level? Okay, I think most of us at some point. So, so is discontentment, is unhappiness consistent with the gospel? No. Okay. Well, why? Well, on a number of fronts. These are some things I've come up with. I imagine you can come up with more. First, if God gave himself and gave his life for me, and I am now reconciled to his son, what more should I be looking for? What more do I need? If I am forgiven and I have God as my father, do I ultimately need anything else? No. No. Now, I think I do, and I want those other things, and when I don't get them, I'm not happy. But the gospel says, look what you have. You have the most important thing of all, forgiveness and reconciliation. So that's one way. It's really a a denial of the value of belonging to God. Um, Next, doesn't the gospel call me to die? Isn't my life, just as it is in the Son going to the cross, about the Father's glory? Isn't it ultimately about Jesus and his people? It's not about how I feel. Now, not to ignore how I feel. I'm not trying to advocate that. But isn't it more important what I'm doing for and in the Lord and what I'm doing for his people? The gospel says that. The gospel calls me to die. So another reason why discontentment is not in keeping with the gospel. Um, I think another one, too, is, is, is when our circumstances are hard and we're struggling with them, the... That sort of discontentment is denial of the gospel promise, a promise that comes with the gospel that says God will work all things for my good. So it's basically saying either God, um, either God, I, you know, you, you can't work everything for my good. This is a bad thing, so we're, we're denying that promise. Or we're, we're thinking that somehow God can't do that. So we're either saying you're not doing it or you can't do it. And both are untrue. So it denies that promise to work all things for our good. Uh, worry, another one. I mean, we could just go through the list. Worry. Um, any ideas how worry might be not in keeping with the gospel? Similar sort of reasons, right? Right? Isn't it? I have everything I need. I'm his child. He's going to take care of all things. He's given me the gospel promise to work all things for good. He's given me himself. I already have everything. He's near. He's given, me the, he's given me prayer through His Son. I can pray and come to Him and experience peace. So we can go through all sorts of behavior and struggles and situations and, and have them compared to the Gospel and see how it serves as a mirror and see in that that we need to turn and repent and walk according to the Gospel, the truth of the Gospel. Look for our minds to be renewed. Look for fresh motivation, but, to, but also let the motivations that are there function. I'm a Christian. I'm not supposed to do this. Help me, God. I don't want to do it. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to, I'm going to look for help. There's, there's lots of things we're called to do. You can take any situation. 
I hope this helps. I hope it's concrete for you, these different ways that the Gospel works change in our lives. So we talked about meeting Christ through the Gospel. That is the fundamental change. We talked about our minds being renewed. We talked about our motivations being refreshed. We talked about our mode of living being changed. John Owen has said, What then is holiness? Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and living out the Gospel in our souls. Holiness is nothing more than the implanting, writing, and living out of the Gospel. That's why we have chosen as our motto as a church, Gospel-centered living for all of life. Because as we understand the Scriptures, that's what we as a people are called to. That's what produces maturity. That's what produces evangelism. That's what gives God glory. That's what produces change. So, uh, the band could come up as we close. May we walk according to the Gospel by the power of the Spirit. Let's not forget the Holy Spirit in this. We spent last week speaking of the ministry of the Spirit. That the Spirit uses these truths. The Spirit applies the truths of the Gospel. So it's a double-barreled shotgun. The Gospel of Christ, the Spirit of God, coming together. It's actually... If you want to change the analogy, the bullet is the gospel, the gunpowder is the spirit in the sense. Coming to bear on sin in our lives. The gospel and the spirit. With that, let's pray and we'll close. Lord, we just thank You. We thank You for the gospel, the good news. We thank You for Your love, Your call. We thank You, Lord, that we have met You. That there already has been tremendous change that's gone on. And now You are with us. We are forgiven. And You are working in our lives and through our lives, Lord, to bring change. We thank You for this. So our confidence is in You, O God. Lord, we see the monster of sin. And we are intimidated by it. But Lord, by Your grace, You are working in our lives. You have dealt with the penalty. You've dealt with the power. And You're working out the presence through the ministry of Your Spirit, through the Gospel. We thank You. And we pray You would do this in our lives more and more, God. Change us for Your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and, and sing.